Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. Well, once again, welcome for those of you who have been with us. Uh, we are spending a lot of time this year in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, this is Luke's account of the life and ministry of Jesus. And we want to be in this season right now of Lent, really um, diving into some of these passages to be learning, to actually be shaped by the Lord Jesus in his uh, time on earth, in his ministry on earth, um, because his ministry is clearly still happening today. And so we're being shaped by these stories together as a community. I'm already on the wrong page. In this season right now, we are in what the church calendar calls Lent. It's this period leading up to Resurrection Sunday. And Resurrection Sunday, otherwise known as Easter Sunday, is this glorious moment in the life of Christ where we celebrate resurrection, resurrected glory of Messiah. But in the season before it, we do spend a lot of time talking about um, uh, a lament and this path that Jesus took to get to that resurrection glory. And we uh, talked a couple weeks ago about this moment throughout the Gospel of Luke, how Luke accounts for this period of time where Jesus is traveling, walking, talking, teaching, healing, etc. And in this whole passage, starting in chapter 9, verse 51, we know that Jesus has his face set resolutely toward Jerusalem, towards the inevitable goal that he knows lies before him. I said this quote um, a couple weeks ago as we started into this season of Lent from Justo Gonzalez, who reminds us that as Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem, this has been traditionally connected to this season of Lent, and that in this next bit of passage, we see the ups and downs still happening. It's not all discouraging and hard, just as with our own uh, journeys through Lent, right? So the path that Jesus follows to Jerusalem is not a straight path, nor is the discipleship journey of Christians symbolized in the Lent journey. It's not a straight path for us either, right? Furthermore, the way to Jerusalem is not entirely one of sorrow and preparation for pain and death. It's also a journey that has joy and promise with many high points, even frequent banquets that provide occasions for Jesus to both feast and teach. Similarly, the path of discipleship has both its highs and lows, victories and defeats. It's moments of daring and obedience, and it's times of shying away from the implications and consequences of faith and obedience. What all of this is saying is just a reminder that we as a community want to be really real with the ups and the downs and the highs and the lows that is this spiritual formation of walking with Jesus. And there are both spaces for highs and lows in this. So, um, One of the things that I would just highlight here is that in those highs and lows, we see in this journey as Jesus is traveling that he's experienced all of that. So as we do, we experience this, we can remember that Jesus has as well, and there's a sense of togetherness in that. So we're continuing in this season of Lent, remembering that Jesus has his face set resolutely, but there's a lot of opportunity still for teaching along the way. As people are, he's encountering people, people are following for uh, long-term or for short-term times. And we see within these teachings in this whole section of Luke that there's a lot of conversations going on about the kingdom of God. In this teaching and conversations, we're hearing this. If you're the promised Messiah, what does that mean for us? 
What does that mean for our future? These Old Testament whispers we've heard about the coming kingdom of God, the day of the Lord. This feels like it's getting nearer. What does this mean? So there's a series of teachings along the way where Jesus is talking a lot about this kingdom of God. And that's where our passage today is sort of coming right out of, right out of one of those questions. So I'm gonna go back a couple of verses. Luke 13, starting in 22. Jesus went through the towns and villages teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? This is a kingdom question. This is a day of the Lord feels near what's going to happen question. This is a question about salvation. So as we know, Jesus and his disciples have been talking about the coming kingdom. I put up a few of the verses here so you can just see. We won't read through all of them, but you'll see there's a proclamation in word that's been happening as Jesus teaches. And then of course there's a proclamation in action because people are seeing things that are making them believe this might just be true. Something's going on. This man is healing from demons, healing from social ostracism and leprosy. Like all of this stuff is happening. Something's going on and they're teaching. We're talking about proclaiming the kingdom of God, the good news of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has come near to you. Something is happening. In Old Testament scriptures, there's this talk, here's big fancy words for the coming uh, kingdom of God someday. There's talk of eschatological messianic banquet. What does that mean? It means a someday future God to come moment when all will be made right. And God's promised that that's gonna happen. And the words used are words that looks like a banquet. Uh, we're gonna look specifically here at Isaiah 25, uh, verses six to nine. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all people, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, the finest of wines. On his mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. This is that eschatological fancy word for like, someday it's all gonna be made new. And we, this is how we know it. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. You guys hear that? Um, might, if you've read your Bibles for some time, you might know in Revelation, that's one of the promises. Jesus will wipe away every tear from every eye, right? This is where these promises come from. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. On that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. So kingdom and salvation, coming banquet and being saved. These ideas, these promises are knit together in the people's hearts, the people of God. And so that's why this question comes that says, okay, it feels like something's happening. This banquet promise might be near Let's talk about salvation and who will be saved. So this is some of the questions that had come. And Jesus says to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I do not know you or where you come from. So this is a shock. This is the piece to a Jewish audience that would be like, what did you say? 
I thought I had that promise, but there's something going on here that's a bit of a shock to people. This messianic banquet, this problem, promise that started way back with Abraham, you will be a blessing to all nations, right? That's the piece that some people had forgotten. You will be a blessing to all nations. And in this quote here, this is for all the earth. But it had come to be assumed that that was a guaranteed place at the banquet for people who were of Jewish descent based on their birth, their national identity as the people of God. Unless they were blatantly disobedient, there was room that there was like maybe some wouldn't, but like basically this is our banquet. And we know that Jesus had come to like blow everybody's mind. Yes, you are blessed to be a blessing to all nations. So what we hear here is this this new teaching that says there's intentionality when I talk about kingdom. This is what the message seems to say. There's an intentionality here. You can't just assume that you will drift in. Enter through the narrow gate means like choose this. Your free will and God's design need to line up. This stuff matters. So there's tension in this message and Jesus knows. Jesus knows that not everyone will like that this kingdom brought forth by him as Messiah is gonna look different than they imagined. Not everybody is gonna like this news. And that's where we get to where we are today. This place where his face is resolutely set toward Jerusalem. And as he goes, he is warned, interestingly, by the Pharisees. He's warned, don't go there. Herod's gonna try to kill you. And Jesus replies in verse 32, go tell that fox, I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day for surely no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. So he calls Herod a fox, which is kind of sassy. He calls him a fox and he knows that he's just, there's something there. But then he continues on with his face resolutely set, even though he knows what is coming. And within this verse, you notice this as well. He also correctly identifies himself as a prophet, which we have known, we've heard whispers throughout Luke. Like Jesus knows his role, but what he's doing in this particular moment is he links himself with the fate of all the other prophetic voices that have come before, the voices that are speaking on behalf of Yahweh to the people of God. Return to me, return to me. And the prophets had been killed in Jerusalem. And he's saying, like, he knows. His face is resolutely set. And he's the next one to claim God's will. And he knows he's going to be rejected. But he says it, I will reach my goal. Resolutely set. Even as he's sent to the epicenter of God's people, God's temple worship, where the kingdom banquet should be most celebratory, knowing that that's where he's headed to be rejected. But his face is still set. One thing is clear to us coming out of this passage and knowing the rest of scripture as we do. Jerusalem has rejected God's messengers in the past. And we are right to read that Jesus is knowingly about to be rejected as well. So that's the path we're on. But with this resolute determination, with the sassiness of calling Herod a fox, we feel this like determination and strength right here in this moment. And then Jesus laments over Jerusalem in the moment of this apparent strength and uh, conviction and everything else, we see a heart that just cries out in what we call lament. Ju- uh, Luke 13, 34, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. 
and you are not willing. We talk about lament a lot in this season of Lent. In the dictionary, whichever one it was, I forgot to give credit to it. It's the first one that Google uses on the top one. It's just what dictionary. So the Google dictionary says, what is lament? That sounds like a churchy word. Fair enough. It means a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. We'll get right back to that in a minute. But I do find this imagery interesting, don't you? A hen protecting her chicks. Number one, he just called Herod a fox. And so now we're talking about hen and chicks. A hen's very real life work, like Justine's real life work includes the dishes, is to protect her chicks from foxes. That's a real life thing that she needs to do. So there is a real connection there, a role to protect from this threat, and it's coming right back to back. But the other thing I love about this is you hear this maternal protectiveness in this tone, maternal protectiveness of God over the children who are loved and who have rejected God's protection. They're about to reject Jesus, and that's the maternal protectiveness coming out in Jesus' tone. So he wants to protect the children of Jerusalem not only from what we would call spiritual or religious ills that are going on, but also about um, uh, from the exploitation of Herod, those who would lord power over them. So there's no doubt in this passage, Jesus bemoans the disobedience of Jerusalem. Remember this teaching we just heard. Not everybody's getting in. He's bemoaning this disobedience fact that there will be disobedience in this kingdom message, but also we see him protecting like a mother hen against all evil. This is like to be an all-encompassing feeling here. Political, religious, spiritual, all evil, all-encompassing. I want to gather you up with God's mama bear heart and protect you from all that stuff that the world would bring at you, aching with the pain at a child's rejection. We can feel that pain. We've been talking a lot about parenting already this morning. That was just by chance, right? But like, just imagine yourself in the role of a parent feeling that pain. I have a better way. I have a way that means flourishing. I know what flourishing is, but you have free will and you're choosing something else. And I know what it leads to. And my heart is breaking watching free will take its natural course. That's the parent of a wayward child. You can kind of sense that. How much more if a parent of a wayward child would feel that angst? How much more does our God, when God watches the children who are going against the flourishing plan? I want to make a quick pause for um, some of us. This maternal language for God is a little alarming. And I want to just take a pause and show that there's some real beauty in this. And there's something that we should pause and look at. Jesus of Nazareth, fully God, is also fully man, male, male embodied person. Jesus is a he pronoun. Jesus is male. And he's using mama language. Why? Why is Jesus as a man using mama language? Because God's heart includes an expression as a mother's heart as well as a father's heart. Don't worry, we're not getting rid of the father's heart. That's biblical and true and wonderful. But how cool is it that God's own heart would also be able to be expressed in maternal language as well? God the father and God the spirit are neither male nor female in our embodied terms. Do you know what I mean? Gender neutral language would do a huge injustice 
by de-personhooding. That was a word that I did not expect to say. But we take away the personhood of our very relational God. We can't use gender-neutral language, right? But uh, God, the, God is, okay, God is Father, not because of God's, the Father's maleness, God is father because of the relationship with the son. Father is to emphasize relationship. Father and son have never not been in relationship with one another and with the Holy Spirit. It's a relational term. So we affirm along with the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, the Church Fathers, Holy Scripture, all of it, God as Father God. We're not undoing a thing if we delight in this truth as well and say, look at Jesus carrying a mother's heart. Our gendered, our gendered language is limiting for the divine, except Jesus 100% divine and 100% human and 100% male in that humanity. But outside of Jesus, Father and Spirit, our language is limiting. That's just the truth. But scripture uses beautiful language like this to express beyond our limitations, to grab beyond our limitations, to show that God's heart includes this, this nurture, this comfort. There's a slide of a bunch of scriptures that I didn't write out all of them, but all of these scriptures, God is describing God's self as a mother bear, a mother eagle. Oh, the mother bear one, you guys, it's like fierce. It's like, and I will tear you up. Not exactly, but it's something like that. It's super like mama bear. That's why we say mama bear. Anyway. Uh, a, a God who gives birth, a God who comforts as a mother, a nursing mother. This language, while not the predominant language, is beautiful because it can expand our mind beyond our own limiting language. Does that make sense? Also like a mama bear, a mama bird with wings over the young. We won't stop God the Father language. I love that. That does not need to be confused when we do this. It's the vast majority. And God the Father language speaks about how we can cry out, Abba, like Jesus did, right? Dad, that intimacy. We're invited to that kind of intimacy. Abba, Father, adopts us. The Father has the ability to do that adopting. There's beauty and importance, huge truth in that language. It's meant, this kind of language is meant to even expand that. Kind of like we could say, like, yes, God is a parent, but like, not just. It's like so much more. God is Father and more. And so this is the beauty. But here's what strikes me here, and I love this. Jesus, fully male, is comparing himself to a mama, to a mother hen. Jesus is expressing his heart as the heart of God. Does that make sense? So like this language of wings and mother love on behalf of God, that's, that's uh, language attributed throughout the Old Testament to Yahweh God, right? So when Jesus picks this metaphor, he is expressing his heart, not to God, but as God. Do you see that? He is using, I have God language of love over you. I have that feeling of God's love over God's wayward children. That's his cry of lament. Often in the Psalms of lament, an author will cry out to be hid in the shadow of God's wings for safety. 
This is a common um, visual. Uh, I picked out one and the, uh, the bottom there. Those are all Psalms that say something to the extent of like, I will hide in the shadow and protection of your wings. That imagery is very well known. I heard once of this competition. I looked for the source and the story. I found the story, but I still couldn't find the artwork. There was this competition um, uh, for painters to express peace. And it came down to two finalists and the one was this beautiful drawing of like a tranquil sea that was reflecting the image of the, the nature around it. And it was so tranquil and beautiful. And everyone was like, how does anything beat that? That's so glorious and it's beautiful. And then the second painting was revealed and it was the image of a storm and a nest and a mama bird taking a pummeling from the elements with her babies under her wings. And that one, the expression of peace in that kind of mayhem. That's the imagery that Jesus would have known from the scriptures. It's throughout the Psalms, this language, give me shelter under your wings. So back to the definition of lament, a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. We feel here Jesus's angst as that mother bird gathered and protecting it. Great personal cost, right? How I longed to gather you under my wings, but you were not willing. There's this huge gap. I wanted this, but you're over here. And herein lies my personal, simplified, probably oversimplified definition of lament. Here is what I long for. Here is the thing that I know God's character and God's heart would call for. This is what I believe is God's intention and design and flourishing. Here's what I want that is in line with God's heart and plan. And way over here is what is going on right now. And I'm standing between the two in the gap crying out, well, this isn't as it should be. That's how simple lament is. It's like an observation of the obvious. It should be here, it is here. What? I don't like it in the gap. That's lament. I'm standing in the chasm between what is and what should be, and I don't like it. My first experience with lament, I didn't have words for it then, but as soon as I started to learn about lament and God's lament and et cetera in church, it was like I knew the moment that I had felt it the most way before I had language for it. I was 14 years old and I was at camp. And if you've ever been to a camp, not like that camp that's all summer every year and they're like your besties forever. If you've ever been to like a flash in the pan camp, one week camp and that's it, you get there and you're like, we're all best friends and we're gonna stay in touch forever. And it's like this very, we're all in this together feeling. And I was in a cabin, 14 years old, with a group of girls and we were sitting one day, I can tell you exactly where I was sitting. I was sitting on this, the second bunk of the middle bunk bed in the cabin and we were talking and my friend, I'm gonna call her Sue, Sue was telling a story, and it was about a crush she had. And he was 17, and I was like, whoa. And I was really late developing, so I was like, I feel like there's stories about like romance and love, and I feel like I know there's something that this is like, but what is this? It's a thing I don't know about, but I know it's supposed to be like this, you know? And I'm listening to this story, and we're all captivated by her story. And then this moment came, and it turned. And I can't tell you how I knew it turned, but something started to feel really foul in my gut. And I was like, something's going wrong. And she kept going. And I realized that she was confessing to us a story that she had never told anybody else. She was confessing how that date with a 17-year-old went so horribly wrong. 
She was confessing the shame that she carried when it was not her fault. All that she lost beyond her agency and her voice in that moment as a 14-year-old girl. I didn't have words for what I felt, you guys, but I can sit, still feel that sitting on that bunk saying, I think romance and a date is supposed to feel like safety and butterflies in my stomach, even though I don't understand it. But this is way the heck over here, and I couldn't do anything. I didn't know my Enneagram number yet or any of that kind of stuff. I've come to learn. I'm a developer. I'm a helper. I'm like a tried and true number two. I want to help. If you give me a problem, I'm like, let's talk about what to do. I had no words. I sat on that bunk, and I wept with her. And I was like, what? What? How did that go so wrong? What do you do? And I just, so like years later, sorry, went on to that story. I still feel it. I didn't know I was going to do that. Um, years later, I had another moment. I didn't have words for the man. I was a believer. Like, I believed in God. I loved, I loved the Lord, but I didn't, like, I would never have thought, this is a moment I should bring God into. I was, like, just stuck in the yuck, right? I was in the chasm between what should be and what was, and I was distraught and shocked and horrified, et cetera. Okay, years later, I had come to know the language of lament, and I was in another unrelated, different situation, but I was in a horrible moment where the chasm between what was supposed to be, what I could feel and sense and taste was possible. Come on, everybody, we can do this version of this. But instead, I was in the middle of this hot mess way over here, and I could stand in the middle of that time and say, this is not okay, to God. I wasn't alone. I wasn't just in this place of absolute despair. I knew the language then of what it meant to cry out that same passionate, fiery language to God instead of just sitting there in it myself. And I don't know how to tell you how much difference it meant to me to know that God was weeping with me, that God weeps in the chasm that is lament. He knew the gap. He knew that wasn't how it was supposed to be. I wasn't alone in the gap. We cry out to God and with God and realize that God is with us. We aren't alone in lamenting in a chasm and we don't have to get lost there either. How do we know that God laments with us? Because Jesus laments. See, this is why we study scripture. Like Jesus laments, Jesus cries out. I am in the chasm between what should be and what is. And I'm heartbroken here. And if Jesus can stand there, whatever we see Jesus doing, we see God doing. What we see the Father doing, we see God doing. Spirit, that's God doing that thing. When we see Jesus lament, we're seeing God lament. And notice here, Jesus isn't just lamenting to God. He's actually lamenting as God, which is really beautiful. That means that God laments. It's not Jesus also knows what it feels like to cry out to God. No, this is like God self-lamenting. And we see that and we know then that when we stand in that chasm between, God's heart knows that reality and knows what it feels like to feel that same feeling. God laments. Jesus, of course, was familiar with the language of lament growing up with the Psalms. There's a lot of Psalms of lament. He's familiar with the longing as God for God to be able to protect the, us as a mother hen, right? When I brought God into my lament and found God there alongside of me, it didn't make the pain go away, I'll just be honest, but it sure did invite in a whole other level in the mystery of our faith, 
that reminds us that there's more to come. God isn't done yet. This kingdom of God language, yes, it means that the kingdom has come, but there's more to come still. And when I'm lamenting with God, I'm reminded, gosh, there's a whole lot I don't know. And sometimes I lament about that too. I'm like, I wanna know how it's gonna end up. Will you do that? And well, I haven't gotten a yes on that yet. But there is a feeling of like, that's okay, that there's a mystery, Melissa, that you don't know all of it yet, but I'm here. Jesus will wipe every tear from every eye. Jesus will judge and make all things right. Just any injustice will be undone. There can't be injustice anymore. We will enter into this place of mystery and that's where we declare a trust in God even when our circumstances do not warrant it. Because of that banquet scene because of what Revelation says. There is a mystery that there is more to come. I don't know the whole story yet. And that's biblical lament. And it's altogether different from despair. Although it can feel really intense and beautiful, that's okay. It's also uh, altogether different than what I think we are more prone to do, which is like putting on a happy face and saying everything is fine when it's not. Or, oh my gosh, when people throw a church nicety at you, and you say something that's going on, and they're like, God has a plan. And you're like, I, that doesn't help right now. I mean, even if you're saying something true, please don't say it to me right now. Let me be in the gap, you know? You guys know that feeling? Anyway, I don't need to go further down that. You guys, I think you know. Oh, the other thing I think is like acting like everything is okay when it's not, or like putting on our, our false okay, or um, putting out our Instagram lovely self, for example, um, when really you're in a chasm, like that just, I don't want that. I wanna be in a community who can sit there and say like, man, I'm standing in a gap today. It feels like a chasm. This is not okay. And I wanna be able to be there with each other together because this is a real part of the human experience. I want a community bold enough to stand in that gap. Because there is a boldness. There is a boldness to this. Being willing to stand before the throne of God and say, hey, this isn't okay. Because God already knows that. God does know that already. And that's why I believe that lament, true lament with God, to God, with God, it actually knits our heart to God's own heart. Because we remember that God knows this isn't okay. Our hearts get to be knit together even while we shake our fists when we stand in that chasm. That's why we want to get more familiar with practicing this stance, even if it feels a little uncomfortable. What might it feel like to truly feel the freedom to share despair with God, alongside God, knowing God is with us in that feeling, knowing God's there, caring, like Jesus, crying out in front of Jerusalem, in his own lament, standing in the gap. Jesus stood there. We can stand there too. Through Jesus, we see God entering into every part of our human experience except for sin, right? Hebrews 4.15, every part. And so Jesus can stand and he can take this part too, this standing in the chasm. Jesus cries out in lament. The psalmist preserves so many songs and poems of lament. If you can't find your own word, we can borrow theirs and it's beautiful. There's a real pattern to the beauty of lament that God honors. Why not us? Are we so used to curating an image of everything is awesome that we're scared to show the ugly side or admit when we're in the ugly side of the emotions of this embodied experience? Are we really, really just skillful at trying to avoid it ourselves? 
This last part, I feel that. 100% any day of the week, I want cozy and comfy to be the thing. I love cozy and comfy. I will pick it any day over hard and hurt, any day. I have to be challenged to remember that, Melissa, you have to engage fully in this experience of being a follower of Jesus. And that involves naming heartache and hurt. I also admit to you that I've been scared to stand at the chasm before because I felt like I might tip right off the edge and fall into the abyss of everything that's wrong. You ever have that feeling? Like if I look too close at the mess, I get vertigo at high spaces. Do you know that feeling? You're like, if I look, I'm gonna fall in, fall into despair. But you guys, that's where biblical lament is amazing because it allows space to really look at that abyss and to name it and say it's not okay. But we hold hope still because of the mystery of our faith. We hold hope still for what will come and we ask God to be a part of the movement of all of it. And that's why it's not just despair, but it's a willingness, a bold willingness to name it. So what we're gonna do is, we knew that we were gonna be talking about this passage today, and next week we're gonna do something special. I really encourage you guys to come and um, engage in this experience. So every now and then, uh, two, three times a year, we have something that we call Encounter, where our worship leaders lead the entire gathering. We have amazing worship leaders here. We're really excited for this. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna have an experience of engaging in lament in a couple different ways. And we're gonna take you through some movements of lament because these are movements that help you to feel like you can go to the place and name the thing, but not tip off the edge of the chasm. And it's really beautiful to be able to do that together in community. We'll go through this as we guard time next week to enter into lament. But I'm just going to show you quickly that there's, um, there's four main movements in lament. And we, uh, we go through them in the same order as the psalmists. First, coming to God. What's that mean? It's the difference between like just lamenting like, this is all awful, and saying, God... This is awful, and it might seem like a little thing, but it's a huge difference with bringing God into the same thing. We name our complaint, we'll boldly ask for God to move according to God's character, and then we choose to trust. And we'll go through the other movements next week, but I have to be honest with you guys. When I used to read the Psalms of Lament, I thought this last part was totally fake. You sit there and cry out to God, I'm in the chasm, this is awful, but I trust you. That doesn't feel very genuine to me. And it took some time to realize that what that was actually is not disingenuous. It's not trying to slap a happy emoji at the end of a really angry email. It's not that at all. What it is is it's saying like, this is a mess, I'm in the chasm, act according to your character, God. I can't see a way out. I know there's more to you. I know that your word is true. I will choose trust even when I don't feel it. And so what I want to encourage us with today is just an openness to say those places that feel like my heart is breaking, to not feel like we have to put the neat and tidy picture on things, but instead be open to saying, not only am I willing to feel it, we're a pretty emotionally intelligent group of people overall, I think. Like we're sometimes willing to know and name our own emotions and our experience, but what does it look like to bring God into that? What does it look like to name the thing, to cry out to God in the midst of the chasm and to tether yourself to holding hope that God is who God says God is? 
because we know that Jesus was bold enough to lament and we can do the same. Uh, if you are feeling at all in a place where the thing that is lamentful, I made that word up too, the thing that's lamentful in your life has been the thing that you've been pushing aside, I wanna encourage you to be bold. Think of the bravery it takes to not avoid the messy part of our reality. It makes the beauty all the more sweeter. So maybe it's just that you are gonna need to pray for the boldness to name the thing that you know is not okay. So pray for that boldness. Pray for God to reveal a thing that you maybe have been trying to avoid. Um, God, I feel a little bit like um, my words have been stumbly today. Um, some mornings that just happens, God. I, I just, I hand them up to you as an offering and ask you to straighten out any mess that I made um, in our hearts and in our minds. God, bring your truth to the forefront. Jesus, I stand in awe that you as God's self will cry out and lament over us. Help us to hear that cry and know you still stand in the gap and that you've made a way forward for us, that you stand in a gap that we could never cross, but you've made that gap surmountable um, by the way of you. You stand as our high priest, we say thank you. We um, confess our unbelief. We acknowledge that, you know, some of us are here just with like great big question marks and we don't know. And like, God, I just pray that you would embrace um, us all wherever we stand with your love, that we may know um, your plans and purposes include us in a really beautiful way. Help us to be bold and courageous uh, right here in this day in our response as we respond, Lord, uh, to you and your words. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.